All right, so this week I'm in my element. That's right. This week is all about Skylab, and I get to teach Dave a few things that he didn't know. Yep, strap yourself in for a history lesson. I'll also do my very best to get you up to date with as much of the news and sport from the space world as I can. But there is a hell of a lot going on right now. If you haven't done so already, come and find us on social media. We're at Space and Things One on Twitter, or get involved at Space and Things Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, special thanks to those who hit the share button or have donated or joined our Patreon page. You are the best. But right now, all we want you to do is sit back and enjoy another episode of the Space and Things podcast. You're listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. And welcome to episode 36 of our podcast. First up, I just want to say I hope you enjoyed our tribute that we put up on Sunday for Michael Collins. It really was wonderful to be joined by Francis French to discuss his life. And uh, I think he was a nice counterbalance to... uh, the emotion that Emily and I had, that's for sure. Now, this week is the 60th anniversary of Alan Shepard's Freedom 7 flight, the first American space flight. For those of you who are in the northeast of the US, this occasion is being marked by the moving of that very Mercury capsule from the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library in Boston to the Stephen F. Udvar Hazy Smithsonian Center in Chantilly, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. This is a museum that has just recently reopened and is definitely worth a visit. They've also got the Discovery Space Shuttle and Gemini 7, but they're moving that... uh, Oh, and I think Apollo 11, the Columbia module is there as well. Uh, Columbia Command Module is also there right now, so check that out. Now, we had intended on talking more about this mission today, but unfortunately, life has gotten away. Emily just had a second COVID jab, and she wanted to save her energy for the big Space Ipsos fundraiser tonight, which has just finished and raised nearly $6,000 for taking up space. Uh, Amazing event, loads of great prizes, lots of good people won those prizes, and I don't want to brag, but I may have won the quiz. Anyway, fortunately, we uh, had pre-recorded something for just this type of occasion, so I'll be covering the news later on, but right now, it's time for my co-host to talk about the subject which she loves the most, and let's be fair, there is nothing better than hearing someone talk about something they're passionate about. So, no Quindar tones today. Today is the day. Five, four, three, engine sequence start, two, one, zero... We have launch commit and we have liftoff. The clock is running and Skylab has cleared the tower. And so our dear audience to tell us five fun facts about Skylab, which we may not know, I present to you, Emily Carney. Ah, thank you, thank you, thank you. So we're going to talk, I'm going to try to keep this as brief as possible. And the reason why I'm saying this is because one time I had a phone conversation with a a reporter who wanted to do a Skylab show. And I think I scared the hell out of him because I was on the phone for like two hours. <laughs> right. My clock is running. <laughs> I just, I just, before you get started, I was listening this week. Uh, I started listening to the 
Apollo 13 minute podcast, you know, that, that ah. goes, goes through the, uh, the Ron Howard movie minute by minute. And you turned up in episode seven, I think it was. I did. Yeah, and I, I was did. Like, it. Oh, it's Emily. It's before we knew each other as well, before we'd, we'd, we'd actually started talking anyway, I knew of you. And even in that, you managed to get a Skylab reference in. <laughs> <laughs> of course I did. Then everybody's like, that's my girl. All right. I, I was so proud of you. I was so proud of you. Yeah. I drop it pretty much in everything, like eating chicken wings. Like, I remember this was on Skylab. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Thing is, I actually believe that. That's that's probably true. Anyway, before you get into the, the five facts, can you give a very brief summary about Skylab to anyone who's never heard of Skylab before? Okay, this is the sort of the most basic explanation the I can come. The cliff, the very short cliff notes. Yeah. Um, Skylab was the first United States space station, which flew from 1973 to 74, had three crewed missions, uh, nine astronauts. <laughs> I can't even do a short mention. <laughs> Um, it mainly studied three big areas, which were solar physics, the human body's response to space flight, and the Earth. So right. that's kind of a very Cliff Notes uh, <laughs> yeah. summary of it. Very Cliff Notes. I'm missing a ton, but that's about as Cliff Notes as it gets. So, yeah, yeah, no, that's great. Without any details at all, I think that, that definitely sums it up. So I guess I'll get started. Um, I'm just going to mention... I actually got this, uh, I wrote an article about, I think, two years ago, and it's about the uh, documentary uh, Searching for Skylab, which um, everybody needs to watch. I believe it's now available on Blu-ray. I was the uh, technical advisor for that film, which was a great honor. But uh, I wrote an article about the movie, so it kind of has the same structure as what I'm about to do now, which is sort of five, you know, random facts about Skylab, but I might insert a few more little random things as well that Excellent. sort of interest me. The first thing was um, Skylab. A lot of people don't know this, but Skylab actually had an Earth analog mission, um, kind of similar how to how now we see a lot of Mars analog missions where people will go sort of to Antarctica or they'll go somewhere for like, you know, a year or so. Oh, I see. Right. That's what you mean. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So Skylab had a sort of an analog mission on Earth. So before any astronauts launched on Skylab, three astronauts, three junior astronauts at the time, uh, took place in an Earth analog mission that would simulate the conditions on Skylab. And this mission was called the Skylab Medical Experiment Altitude Test, or SMEET. <laughs> um, if you Google SMEET, there is a mission patch for it, and it's pretty funny. Nice. It was uh, held for 56 days, which is nearly two months at uh, NASA's Johnson. For people who don't know months, uh, <laughs> for uh, at NASA's Johnson Space Center, and it was held from July 26th to September 19th, 1972. And the uh, three astronauts who were like the guinea pigs were uh, Bob Crippen, who flew on the shuttle program. All these guys flew in the shuttle program. Uh, the three guys were Bob Crippen, uh, Bo Bobco, and William Thornton, Dr. William Thornton, who's a medical doctor. And we did an episode about him a few episodes ago when, yeah. he, when he passed away. Mm. Yeah. So basically all they did was they, um, I'm going to just summarize it because that's kind of an episode in itself almost. That's the mission where Dr. Thornton set a, accidentally set the um, bicycle exercise bike on fire while trying <laughs> to use it. I'm dead serious. It started smoking. I'm not making this up. Wills of fire. 
Yeah. <laughs> so he accidentally set the bike on fire, which is kind of hilarious. I think he was trying to prove that things could be broken on there because that's the kind of person he was. He had a really funny sense of humor. They basically uh, evaluated conditions and activities that were to be conducted aboard the real space station at a one-third uh, bar pressure. And uh, there's some footage of this in Searching for Skylab. It's okay footage just because it's from 1972. They didn't have HD back then, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately. That's kind of a neat fact that a lot of people don't know about because it's not something that's uh, you know, really discussed often. All I know is when they came out, Bob Crippen had a big, um, he had like a, a big uh, Fidel Castro beard. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Do you know if this was the first mission of its kind? Were these kind of things, some things that had done before or was this? Yes. There was a uh, analog mission for Apollo called 2TV1. Right. And uh, it actually had a uh, Skylab crew member on it. it. Joe Kerwin was the commander of the mission. Uh, Vance Brand and uh, Joe Engel were also on the mission. And um, I want to say they did a, I think it was a week long mission and it was in June 1968. And it was basically to verify the block two command module. So they spent, they spent a week on the ground in a command module. Yeah. In a, in a sort of a vacuum chamber. Yeah. And it was at a, I believe it was at Johnson space center as well. And I think the lunar module had a similar test and um uh, gosh i think it was i, I um I forgot what it was called exactly but i i want to say jim Irwin and john bull were assigned to that one but i think john bull had to get pulled from it because he had a, a medical mm. uh issue and i think they just pulled put like a you know sort of a test subject in there a non-astronaut right. to finish it from what i remember reading i think i'm correct in that i'm not sure yeah, so there were similar missions conducted before. And yeah, they did put three guys in there for a week, which is kind of freaky. Yeah. Did, did they do it for, do you know if they did it for the Gemini program or they just did they just send Jim Lovell and Frank Borman up there for two weeks? They did not do that for Gemini program. They just sent them up for two weeks. Right. And- okay. Yeah. Even the uh, 10 days or bust that Cooper and Conrad did, that was pretty crazy as well in Gemini. Yeah. I, I, I think they tested the hardware, but I don't think they put did like an analog where they just shut people in there if they did somebody please jump out and tell me i'm wrong so yeah please do you know what these things fascinate me these kind of analog missions uh there's stuff going on right now which is crazy for the mars missions we i'm going to do an episode at some point we're going to do an episode covering this stuff uh maybe get someone who's participated in one of these because it's really interesting that people are willing to put themselves up as being a test subject a science project essentially to see whether these things work and I think it's an area of spaceflight and the development of spaceflight, which is really interesting. Um, so, yeah, let's let's do an episode on this in future because this is fascinating. Yeah, these are going on uh, currently or being planned where people, you know, they get a, a few people and they sort of isolate them for an extended period of time just to see how would a crew work together during a super long mission, yeah. you know, where you're going to have to be with somebody for about a year or longer. Yeah, and this indicates the fact that that Smeet mission must have been a success and they must have learned something from it, otherwise they wouldn't still be doing it. Oh yeah, absolutely. It does. I, I do believe what happened on Smeet had some long-term resonances and it did teach the subsequent actual Skylab crews and now people on the ISS and people hopefully in the future who get to go to deep space, you know, how to live in space and how to work as a as a crew yeah so 
Fascinating. So um, I guess I'll go to uh, random fact number two. Here's another one that uh, some people do not know about. They're a little surprised when they hear about it. Skylab had some pretty awful injuries when it got launched. Uh, it almost did not make it to space. So it launched on May 14th, 1973. Uh, the day was really overcast. And the reason why I say that, it's kind of important. Because um, at about 60 seconds, it disappeared into a cloud bank. Well, at the same time it disappeared into a cloud bank, a bunch of events started to happen. In short, Skylab arrived in space missing its micrometeoroid shield, which is pretty bad. And the uh, SAS-2 solar array was also missing. And also the SAS-1 solar array was jammed shut by debris because what happened was some of the debris from the meteoroid shield there was like a strap and it wrapped around a uh, part of the solar wing um, and it basically prevented it from deploying all the way. So if you see early photos of Skylab when um, the first crew was kind of doing a fly around of it, you'll see that the wing is like, you can't see me if you're listening to the podcast, but its arm looked stuck, basically. So when you when you joked earlier about the fact that you can reference chicken wings and turn it into a Skylab story, you're, you yeah. literally can do that. Which is impressive. You can. So, uh, just just to, to clarify, the space station itself was a converted stage of the Saturn V rocket. Correct. The orbital workshop area was a converted stage. There's there's a few different components to Skylab, but the large body you see when you see pictures of it, yeah, yeah it's the upper stage of a Saturn V. Right, and so they launched it. They launched it on a Saturn V, but with it looks yeah. different because obviously it didn't have a command module on the top, so it's got a configuration like shape. Different. You might see images of diff of this one rocket, which looks yeah. very different compared to all the other Saturn Vs, and and it's got this cone top, which I'm guessing was what underneath it was the was the space station, and I'm guessing yeah. I'm guessing that load of vibrations caused things to fall off. Basically, what happened was they started seeing that the uh, the micro bleh, micrometeoroid sh um, shield, the torsion rods, were starting to shift position. So basically around uh, 63 seconds, instruments revealed that the um, shield came off. That caused a chain of a bunch of other things happening. I believe it dinged part of the S2 stage as well. Right. So the S2 stage started to overheat. Because um, the inner stage skirt didn't come off between the, uh, I believe it's between the S1, the S1C, the first stage and the S2 stage, right? Yeah. You know the videos? Of the ring the famous, coming, yeah, the ring yeah. coming off after the after staging. It didn't come off. Well, no, didn't come off for Skylab. That right. was the only one where it didn't come off. And um, if there had been an Apollo crew aboard, they would have had to abort because... Yeah. Um, in that case, the S2 stage overheats, and that's what happened on Skylab. And um, it really speaks to the robustness of the Saturn V that um, the S2 stage didn't explode or yeah. something like that. So the, really, um, Skylab was probably moments away from not making it to orbit, and a lot of people don't know that. A lot... Yeah, I think about that a lot because I'm like, would they have flown the second one then? Well, like, I was just about to ask that. Was there a backup? There was a backup. There was Skylab B, but um, honestly, by that point, they knew they weren't going to fly that. Right. Because they, they weren't canceling the program, but because of um, budget cuts and because of the fact that NASA was going all in on doing the shuttle program at the time, they weren't really allotting any more stuff to Skylab than they needed. 
really. That's basically the explanation. So yeah, I, I, I wonder if there's a paper trail of of conversations or memos about what they would have done because they must, they, you know, they obviously always there plan had, for these things, don't they? So yeah, you imagine those conversations were being had. What what do we do if it, if the launch fails? Although a Saturn V hadn't failed at that point, this was a different launch to the others because of the the. the cargo being completely different obviously so yeah i wonder that myself um if anybody has any knowledge of this out there um if you're listening to this if there's a paper trail you know talking about this and i am not aware of it yeah just give us a shout out because i would like to know about that personally because that's kind of an interesting what if yeah absolutely to me. like what if it didn't make it but especially when it was so close to not making it so it was exactly. very close to having to having to go down whatever their backup plan was, be that whether it was we're just not going to do it or uh, whether it was we're going to launch another, another one uh, and, and see what happens. So, yeah, that's so that's point two. Point two is it nearly didn't make it. Nearly didn't make it. Point three is something I'm currently trying to look into. It's not really brand new information, but it's something that I really didn't know a lot about. So I kind of wanted to share it because I thought it was cool. Now, as I mentioned sort of in my brief summary before, um, Skylab worked in three major areas of experiments. Uh, you, it studied the sun. Um, if you see a lot of pictures of the sun in early 70s books, chances are Skylab took them and their film many of them are film pictures they actually had film they had to develop so it wasn't instantaneous they didn't have digital back then uh like we do now so um another area was uh studying the human body and how it reacted a long-term uh space flight because they'd never done that before and um another area was earth science and they had some really nice cameras aboard skylab and in certain modes, they could, you know, turn the station and take some uh, nice images of Earth, you know, and mm. it would show, you know, different formations and things like that. And it was sort of done in concert with like stuff like Landsat at the time. They just launched that and it was really the first effort in mon monitoring the Earth's like environment and things like that. Uh, not a real sexy program, but one that I think in, a, you know, 100 years will appreciate. You know, mm. here's something I didn't really know a lot about until recently. Skylab actually did some astronomy, stellar astronomy, which I was very surprised by because I was like, I didn't know it had that capability, honestly. And I'm kind of embarrassed I didn't know about this, but it had some uh, stellar astronomy uh, instruments. They had the ultraviolet uh, stellar astronomy instrument, which was actually developed by another astronaut, a uh, Kurt, I don't know if I'm ever saying his name right, uh, Hennies, I think doc, he was an astronaut scientist. I always say Hennies, but I've never heard anyone say it, so I don't... <laughs> it could be Hennies. I always think of I always think of Heinz, but... <laughs> yeah, he developed the um, ultraviolet stellar astronomy experiment because ultraviolet imaging at the time was very, I, I, I wouldn't say popular, but it was viewed as being really important. They also had... Um, the ultraviolet panorama camera, which sounds really cool. I think that was a French experiment, if you can believe it. And not an ESA <laughs> experiment, because ESA was not around yet, but I think it was from like a French university or something like that, which I didn't know. Yeah. And they also had an experiment called the Galactic... This one sounds really cool. The Galactic X-ray mapping experiment, which tried to track X-rays that weren't coming from the sun, if that makes any sense. And... Right. 
The other um, astronomy instrument, which was mainly used to observe comet Kohutek, which we're going to talk a little bit more in the next point that I talk about. The space station also had a far ultraviolet electrographic camera, and it was the backup one for Apollo 16. It was the same camera. I was about to say I've heard of that before. It's the backup for Apollo 16. It was uh, flown on Skylab, and it was developed by George Carruthers, same guy. Mm. And this is actually kind of cool. I did a little bit of reading about it. It was in the, uh, I believe, the station scientific airlock because it required two conditions. The flight couldn't be exposed to humidity and had to operate in a vacuum. Wow. Now, there is a uh, reconstructed version of the uh, ultraviolet camera that is uh, owned. It's it's not on display at the museum, but it is uh, owned by the National Air and Space Museum. It is a reconstructed backup engineering model. It is uh, number four. So and um, it was also built by George Carruthers. So that's really cool. And I think that camera is discussed in that other book that uh, by Tieselmere Harmony, the uh, uh, 50 Objects. It is indeed. Yeah. I was hoping when we interviewed her way back, whenever that was, I was going to bring that up because I was hoping that we'd find out where it was because uh, it's something I'd like to see. Yeah, for sure. Because I think it's such a such a wonderful object and has so much in terms of what it did for Apollo 16, but also the Skylab reference as well. Yeah. So to be able to see one of these things would be amazing. Yeah, I'm assuming that it was the the Skylab one uh, was probably burned up when it reentered, unfortunately. So uh, and the other yeah. one's on the moon. So the other one's is yeah. still on the moon. And so that one We'll go and see that in we'll a couple of weeks. We'll see that soon, hopefully. <laughs> uh, you're gonna die. Okay, fact four. Yes. And I wanna make this very clear is there was no mutiny on Skylab four. Um <laughs> Skylab four, there's a lot of misinformation out there about that crew, about a supposed mutiny strike or work stoppage. When searching for Skylab was being put together, uh, Dwight Stephen Bonicki, I'm probably not saying his name right. I'm sorry, Dwight. Um, he actually went to the source to defuse this myth. He went to Ed Gibson, Dr. Ed Gibson, who actually flew on Skylab 4. Here, you know, we discover that the uh, strike was an actual day off. It was a agreed upon day off, mutually agreed upon with the ground. So they were aware of it. This is the short version of the story. I've done a whole hour-long lecture on this damn <laughs> issue alone, so I will spare you the hour version and just give the very short version. But uh, basically what happened was the, the crew was uh, overscheduled and overtaxed from the beginning of its mission because they were the last crew to go up. So the people on the ground were like, okay, we're going to put all the science into this one mission. And they had a lot of work on their plate really more than anybody could handle. Eventually, they had what Jerry Carr, the commander of the crew, referred to as a seance with the ground. I think it was two ground passes because, remember, they had tracking stations and so they had to wait. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Imagine being mid-argument and having to wait for 30 minutes. The old adage of, uh, right, you count to 10 and then then (laughs) think about what you said. What if you ended on like a thing like, and you know, I tell you what, next time I, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh, sh- are they gonna gonna say I'm gonna get bleeped for that? I'm sorry, I mean, I said a cuss word, but um, in short, they worked out their issues very civilly with the ground, and days after the alleged quote mutiny, Deke Slayton, who was the uh, astronaut boss, 
He actually gave the crew of Carr, Gibson, and Poe glowing reviews in a ground-to-orbit chat. So really, that strikes out the idea of having a strike completely. If they had screwed up badly, they would have been on Slayton's... I don't want to say the word. Yeah, he wouldn't have been nice. Yeah, he they would have been on his list. We'll yeah. put it that way. I think Chris Craft even came on the radio and spoke to them, and 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 it was all fairly pleasant as well. So for yeah. that to, for that to have happened again, not someone who minces his words. Exactly. Correct me if I'm wrong about this, Emily. I, it wasn't part of the problem that there was a mix up with who was supposed to be uh, in control of talking to the ground that day or something like that as well so it may have appeared like they were ignoring the ground but they weren't they just they got their shift pattern wrong or something like that the crew did absolutely what happened was the uh, crew to be more efficient they basically made it so okay on this pass you'll handle communications on this pass you'll handle it on this pass you'll handle it right and that's actually a smart idea because they had so much work to do you know not all three of them had to stop doing what they were doing and, you know, talk to the ground. So at one point, unfortunately, all three of them had their comms off. So nobody was talking to the ground. It's funny, the day that this apparently happened, you don't really notice it in the transcript. So it wasn't like there was this outrage, like, oh my God, they stopped talking to us. I don't think really a lot of people noticed. (laughs) I I know that sounds terrible, but, you know, that was such a long duration mission. I I don't think it was like an outrage, like, and they stopped, you know, I I think it was just one of those things that um, over the years, over the decades was kind of dramatized for sensationalism, unfortunately. Yeah, I think it's one of those weird things, but I think it's probably because of the way we see things in films where you assume that the crew are all talking to the mission control all the time, but they're really not. There will be long periods normally where they're not talking. And and as you say, only one of them will have a patch in on their ear listening for mission control out of the three of them at any one point. Because when you're working, the last thing you want is someone nattering in your ear every 10 minutes, right? So it was right that they had that kind of scheme in place where only one of them would be listening out for stuff. And uh, and if they were working really hard, it's easy to see how they may have got confused of who was supposed to be doing it, whose shift it was. Absolutely. I sometimes miss messages that come in. <laughs> how many times have I looked at my phone? My phone didn't ring. What? <laughs> I didn't see exactly. that. And I'm sitting right by it. So, And I'm not doing anything anywhere near as important as being on a space station doing a very busy mission. You can see how those things can happen and you can then see how it can get taken the wrong way which is just very frustrating. Yeah, I'm the same way. Like uh, like you were just saying, there's days when, you know, I'll have my phone right by me and all of a sudden I'll see, you know, a text from my boss. And I'm like, what? When did that happen? When did this come in? And he's like, dude, I've been trying to get to you for like two hours. And I'm like, I my phone didn't go off. I'm so sorry. And it's like, oh my God, you know? So yeah, imagine that, you know, happening in space, you know, it, it happens, yeah. you know, totally understandable. And then when, when again, when we, when we then have the, the, the periods where there was no communication at all, you factor that side into it as well. It, it can then look like it's been a hell of a long time before mission control was heard from the crew at all. Hence why it can seem like, Oh, hang on a moment. They're not talking to them. They must be going on strike. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think it was something really just taken out of context for to sell books and to uh, sell newspapers at the time. And to get clicks. Yeah, to get clicks. Uh, exactly. That's more in modern times, but absolutely. And people have repeated it on the internet a lot, which sucks. So The Purple Gang is very happy to be the guys that get to congratulate you as the undisputed space champs of the world. 
Okay, uh, fact number five, and I'm going to talk a little bit about how Skylab ended in 1974 in February. The last crew left, and um, they powered down all the systems. Uh, Jerry Carr boosted its orbit. So at the time, it was expected that, okay, it'll be in orbit until 1983. So they were thinking, you know, okay, by that point, the space shuttle will be in operation. So, you know, maybe we can fly the space shuttle up to it, right? So by 1978, in early that year, it became apparent that um, the sun was becoming more activated than expected. So what that did was that causes the Earth's atmosphere to swell. So Skylab started to come back a little sooner than expected. So they started to worry about it. It began to, um, NORAD began tracking it, and it basically um, was entering its uh decay list which means okay this is going to come down in the next you know year two years or so if you don't do anything about it Mm. so what happened was in march 1978 between nasa um workers at nasa and uh ibm if i'm correct they basically uh came up with some programming and um they rebooted skylab they rebooted the computer system and they entered some um new uh modes to try to control it During that time, a mission was being planned. It was called STS-2A, and that mission would have been actually pretty badass. And this is why. It would have been flown by Fred Hayes and Jack Lausma. That would have been awesome in itself. Oh, my God. (laughs) And basically what they would have done is um, they would have brought, basically, it's sort of a IUS. It's like a a stage, a rocket stage. And it was called the uh, Teleoperator Retrieval System or the TRS and basically what would have happened was Hayes would have flown, rendezvoused with Skylab, not docked with it, but it would have rendezvoused with it. Lausma would have remotely guided the TRS to Skylab and put it on the station. And that stage would have boosted the spacecraft's orbit. So that was a plan for a while. And Hayes and Lausma were actually training for this. By the end of 1978, it was apparent that this was not going to happen for two reasons. Uh, the sun was doing what it does, and uh, Skylab was just coming down way more quickly than expected, and shuttle was not ready by that point. In fact, it wouldn't fly till 1981. So um, around mid-1979, there was kind of a lot of hype you know, in America. I don't know what it was like in the UK, but in the United States, there was a lot of hype. Like, oh my God, Skylab's coming down. It was a, it's a very large object, obviously. So people were freaking out about it. There were a lot of T-shirts made, souvenir T-shirts, and I, I actually own one of them. It's pretty funny. It has a target on it with the Skylab. It's pretty funny. Basically, what happened was, uh, I think it was July 11th, 1979, they put a, when I think Skylab was around 80 miles in altitude, they put it in basically an orientation mode to try to equalize the torque along the spacecraft. So it wouldn't have an uncontrolled re-entry. So basically the idea was we're going to steer it over the ocean and just dip it in there and nobody's going to hear about it again. Yay, we're done by Skylab. This didn't happen to plan. What happened was they uh, maneuvered it, you know, over the ocean and stuff. And NASA announced, you know, Skylab has re-entered. And um, in Western Australia, around the Perth area, uh, people started going outside. It was midnight there because then... um, Eastern Australia, around like Sydney, I think it was like uh, 2 a.m. So in Western Australia, people are going outside and they're like, wow, what's this light show going on outside? Why is there a bunch of sonic booms out here? 
this is nuts. And then they figured out, holy crap, it's it's Skylab. So parts of it fell on Western Australia. And yeah, there's actually a really fun video on YouTube. It's from the uh, ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Company. And uh, I've watched it several times and it charts the entire reentry. And it's amazing. And if you really want to find out the Australian uh, perspective towards the Skylab reentry, I would suggest watching it. It's actually a lot of fun and it's kind of amazing to hear it because in about mid-broadcast around 2 a.m., I think Sydney time, you start hearing the phone calls coming in. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. People like, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of lights outside. And I'm like, oh my God. You know, NASA, meanwhile, is like, oh, it reentered safely over the Indian Ocean. People in Western Australia are calling up like ABC, like, no, it, 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 yeah, they're saying it's reentered, but we're seeing it over our house, you know, so. You sent me that video before and I watched it. It is amazing. The, the reactions are great. On the whole, none of them are scared. They're really excited about yeah. it. Yeah. It, it's an excitement. Oh, wow. Look, there it is. We can see it's coming down. Look at this amazing thing that's happening in our sky. And if um, you actually watch the video, I mean, the audio is really cool, but if you watch the video, it actually shows some of the debris coming over and it it's kind of, uh, from seeing that, you know, me seeing that, I was like, oh, my baby came down. <laughs> killed my, my baby. If you go to um, the uh, U.S. Space and Rocket Center, one of the oxygen tanks is actually there. So it's a fiberglass yeah. tank, and you'll see it. It's by the um, the Skylab exhibit, and it's, it's fairly torn up. It's more intact than you would imagine for something coming out of space. So... <laughs> The reason a lot of people ask, well, why didn't it just disintegrate? Why did it um, come down in chunks over Western Australia? That's a great question. The reason why is because um, it was a lot more robust than anybody expected. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure the solar panels probably burned up first. And um, then probably pieces started breaking off of it. Probably the um, telescope broke off of it first. I think it just held together until it couldn't you know so i think that's the reason as, as was proved right at the start of this with its launch as well it nearly didn't get there but it did because it was so robust and it shouldn't have come back but it did because it was so robust yeah i i think it's funny that you know it was missing some pieces parts but it still didn't die and then yeah <laughs> it wouldn't die on the way back either it was like nope I'm I'm staying together as long as I possibly can. And to me, that kind of speaks. And I, I don't know. I, I haven't really read about. I don't think there's any studies about that or anything. If there are somebody, please send me a link. That to me really speaks of like the robustness of the Saturn system and um, the Apollo hardware at the time, because I'm like, wow, that held together pretty damn long. You know? Yeah, there's, it's, it, there's a metaphor in here. Something for something. <laughs> yeah there's something it, there's some there's some kind of metaphor in this that you know it just didn't want to die or whatever yeah you know too tough to die i don't know too big to die yeah the, ro the rocky balboa of space flight i don't i, I don't have know. no idea it was a beautiful space station it was a beautiful space station it was gorgeous and um it, it, it was a little lopsided it didn't show up as uh the McDonnell Douglas photos or the pictures had it 
the schematics from before it was launched. Didn't look exactly like that, but it got the job done. But I think I think that's the beauty of it, though. It's, it wasn't perfect. No, it wasn't. <laughs> you know, the, it had those little quirks, which made it, I think, even more special. Yeah. Uh, and the and the little fixes that they had to do to make it work and and to make it habitable, which were impressive engineering feats. The way they turned that round so quickly as well. It's 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 a program worthy of being looked into and being respected for sure. Not just because the science we learned from it. It's the triumph over adversity as well. You know, all the things that were going wrong. Oh, and yeah. They still got three great missions out of it and a whole ton of science. Yeah. And that kind of happened, you know, throughout the whole program. I mean, it wasn't a very long program. I think it was only around nine months in duration or so. But throughout the whole program, you know, when crews were flying on it, you saw them kind of they had to do some fixes and orbit, you know, to sort of keep the meteoroid shield. You know, they they had to put up a twin pole sunshade on the second mission. And the, you know, the third mission, they had um, some, you know, I think they had a, they lost a gyroscope, something like that, you know, and the second mission, they actually had a uh, thruster issues with the command module. So there was talk of having a rescue mission. Of course. yeah. You've probably seen the schematic of the rescue command module with the five couches and stuff like that. I mean, that's, yeah, that's crazy. Five people, in, five people in one tiny command one itty bitty module. command module, you, you know, how much fun that probably would have been and how bad that would have smelled, you know? But, um, <laughs> yeah. Especially with three of the guys having been up having there been for up so there long. Having been up there for probably, and they did have a shower on Skylab, but um, to my knowledge, nobody really liked it that much because yeah, it was hard. It can't have been that much It was fun. hard to use because water in space is not like water on Earth and it um, was really difficult to use. So um, I hope Jack doesn't kill me if he's listening to this, hi, Jack Lausma, I love you. I think he only used it. Okay, everybody probably knows the famous picture of him in the Skylab shower. It was like the ultimate, you know, mid-70s, like, here's the hot guy in a, sh- in a space shower picture, right? That was the only time he used the shower up there, I think, to do the demo. Because it was such, it was wow. a pain in the butt. Because basically yeah, what yeah, happened yeah. was you had to, you know, put some special soap on yourself, then squirt yourself, then wipe it down real quick because the water, it was a pain. So they, um, they found that, uh, sponge baths, kind of what they do on the ISS now, where you just kind of wipe your, they felt like that did a better job. So they just did that. I think what I like a lot about Skylab are those images and the videos of them having fun in the large area. I don't know what part that is. The workshop, maybe, uh, where they could just, float around i don't think there's been another area in space that astronauts could just float around or or dance around in zero gravity no as skylab so we've had some we get some amazing images and videos from that section and they look like they're having a lot of fun i know pete comrad used that area uh, to try and pick his crew up when they were having a few problems. And they just made a little video of them doing stupid things and running around and and jumping over each other and in zero gravity and it it just looked like so much fun. And like, I want to go in there and have some fun in zero gravity. Yeah, they had a lot of fun up there. I think that's another thing, you know, that people kind of miss is they had such a good time up there. And as you said, they did have that large volume. Obviously, the ISS is larger than Skylab, but it, it's modular, which means the volumes were kind of put together piece by piece and by piece. And um, Skylab is the largest single. I think it's still the largest single volume launched into space. Um, to this, I think to this day, unless um, the Soviets or the Russians or the Chinese did something that I was not aware of. Yeah, they had all yeah. that available space and they can, you know, do exercises and 
this is oh my god this is embarrassing as hell um they actually did photos in there and um i've seen them i will not share them because i don't want to get yelled at by any skylab astronauts um they would do photos in there in their underwear i know i've actually seen them i was not looking for them i was doing another podcast and i was looking up skylab medical experiments or medical information i'm like oh okay i'll type this in what the hell all of a sudden i see and i'm not going to mention who it was i'm gonna i see all these pictures of an astronaut like in his skivvies and i'm like okay what the hell is this turns out they would take photos in um the orbital workshop to see how much mass they'd lost this was actually oh okay it so was for science that actually needed yeah, it wasn't yeah, 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 to, yeah. you know it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't for the skylab calendar that you no been it for. was not for the 12 month skylab <laughs> hunk of the month calendar it was not that which should exist by the way but um it should be a thing it was actually for a purpose it was to detect okay how much mass did they lose before and after space flight which makes sense yeah. because that i mean skylab was the first to do a lot of stuff it was the first where they figured out that the, the spine elongates in space where you grow an inch or two mm -hmm. and it's like you know they figured that out they really well documented all of it so and um yeah. the united states we kept our data from everything so uh, a lot of that stuff is still out there you know and it's still relevant i think because um you know i, I think the medical stuff is definitely still relevant i don't know if the a lot of the solar stuff is probably superseded by some of the observatories now. Back then, it was really cutting edge. The medical stuff, yeah. though, is just, to me, I think that's still relevant because they they had a lot of data from that. You know, yeah. microgravity probably, I don't think it's changed much in 40-something years. So it's something <laughs> to think about, you know. So I think I'll stop. We have almost an hour. And like I said, if I'm unchecked, I will be here for three hours talking. Yeah, it's quite impressive. Uh, we've done about 45 minutes, but we were interrupted. You won't know this, listener, but we were interrupted by cats fighting. Uh, and and uh, Emily, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. When that happened, I found the most British thing ever. Uh, Why? I, I, I was like, <laughs> what's that on my feet? And I looked down and I found a tea bag on the floor. Uh, I, <laughs> I don't know why there is a tea bag on the floor in the middle of where I'm recording, but there was. So, uh, yes, uh, I am your British friend after all. <laughs> ah! Yeah, spilling the tea. Spilling the all tea right. bags, absolutely. One foot between two of my legs, man, see if that works. Well, I love that, and I'm guessing that because you're still listening, you did too. So now I'm going to do a brief summary of the news. Since we recorded episode 35, we've had five orbital launches, which may actually be a record since we started recording these podcasts. There have been two separate Falcon 9 Starlink missions, releasing 60 Starlink satellites each. Ariane Space has launched a Vega rocket from French Guiana, delivering five satellites. And in China, a Long March 4C rocket put an Earth observation satellite into space. Also in China, a Long March 5B rocket, and this is probably the highlight of the launches this week, put the first part of a brand new Chinese space station into orbit. The core module called Tianhe, which translates as Harmony of the Heavens, will need about 10 more launches to complete, but they're actually aiming to have this finished by the end of 2022, believe it or not. And the first three astronauts will actually be on board this October. 
So I think it's time we finally do that full episode on the Chinese space program, and I'm going to make sure that happens before October. Now, I'm going to leave most of the details in the show notes of these launches and the videos, obviously. So if you wish to look all that information up, please do. It's either in your podcast app, there'll be a note section, or just visit our website, which is spaceandthingspodcast.com. But while we're talking about space stations, the Russian Deputy Prime Minister has said that Russia may withdraw from the ISS by 2025, and they plan to build their own. He told the BBC that the condition of the International Space Station meant it was a catastrophe waiting to happen. But he did later follow up that remark, saying that a full technical inspection is needed before a decision is made, and partners are informed of that decision. Still, after 23 years in partnership with the US, this really does feel like a sad story and I hope it gets sorted. Talking to politics, the US Senate unanimously confirmed Bill Nelson as NASA's 14th administrator. He's now been sworn in and also President Biden has announced that he will continue with the National Space Council, which is a space policy group which Donald Trump brought back into action during his presidency. President Biden announced that this group will be led by Vice President Kamala Harris. There have been some fantastic images coming out of Cape Canaveral where the giant core stage of the Space Launch System rocket has arrived. It's the first time that a rocket which has been designed to take humans to the moon has arrived at the Cape in nearly 50 years. And I can't wait to see this thing fully erected and joined with the two solid rocket boosters and then launch. Hopefully we'll have that first uncrewed launch by the end of this year. I'm keeping everything crossed for this and... God, I even hope, wouldn't it be amazing if I could get out and see this? I mean, hopefully Emily will, because to, to hear the noise of this rocket, I think, will be something else. And talking of moon missions, we actually had our first splashdown at nighttime since 1968 with Apollo 8. The Crew-1 Dragon capsule arrived back with its four astronauts from the ISS, and the views were really something. They had a load of night vision cameras up and... It was really quite special to see this. I don't think I've actually ever seen any footage from the Apollo 8 splashdown. I may have that wrong, but I can't recall seeing anything. Um, Now, as always, I'll post videos within the show notes. The Crew-1 mission was also the longest mission duration for a crewed launch in an American-built spacecraft, which is quite something. It was five months long. Some more records broken in space. We love to see it. Now, on the day that I'm editing this podcast, which is Wednesday the 5th of May, we've had two other huge bits of news. Firstly, today, on the 60th anniversary of the old Shepard's first American spaceflight, Jeff Bezos has made an announcement that Blue Origin's new Shepard spacecraft will be launching their first astronauts into space on July the 20th. Now, this spacecraft can perform brief suborbital missions, and there are six seats on board, although I haven't actually seen how many they're planning on launching on this flight. But what is really crazy is that they're going to take a paying customer on this mission with one seat up for grabs in an auction where the money is being donated to Blue Origin's foundation, Club for the Future, which endeavours to inspire future generations into careers in science and technology. I can't get my head around the fact that they're doing this on the very first flight with astronauts. Crazy, but amazing. Hopefully. Anyway, finally, 
Literally, just now as I was editing, I had to pause to watch the test launch of SpaceX's Starship SN15 prototype. It reached 10 kilometers, and they nailed the landing this time, and it didn't go bang at any point. I posted a video in the show notes, but annoyingly, the weather wasn't perfect, and there seemed to be a few problems with the cameras. So it's not the most gripping of watching, but the end is pretty damn cool. So I know I've raced for all this, and I could have talked about all of these stories for a long time, but... That hopefully gets you up to date with everything that's going on in the world of space. Thanks very much for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed learning a little bit more about Skylab. Uh, We'll be back next week, but please remember, in space, no one can hear you stream. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.